Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Expat Chit Chat Show. I'm your host, Zach Ireland, currently filling in for Angela Merkel. Ms. Merkel could not be here today, unfortunately, as she had one too many Weitwein Spitzes last night at the Wunderbar. Our thoughts and prayers are with Ms. Merkel during these trying times. Joining us is writer, entrepreneur, economist, and Bitcoin enthusiast, Brad Fink. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks. All right. So let's go ahead and start with a very, very, very simple question, okay? Sure. All right. So keeping in mind the ever-fluctuating rate of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to traditional currency, how much would a trip to the barbers be if a shave and a haircut is only two bits? I have no idea. I'm not... I'm not... There. The Bitcoin is divisible into... Um, down to like the, the ten thousandth measure, and I don't think one of those measures is actually a bit. It would be called a <laughs> satoshi. So, as as the penny would be to the dollar, a satoshi would be to Bitcoin. Um, that is a much more professional answer than I wanted or expected. I was just kidding. Can you imagine if I started off like a podcast like this? How terrible it would be. Oh, okay. So we'll skip that. Yeah. No, it's jokes. Jokes. You know. Yeah. Keep keep it. Uh, Full of brevity. Um, let's start off with actually something simple. So where have you lived? Oh, I was born in New York City. I grew up in South Florida. So I lived in a town called Coral Springs, Florida on the Everglades. Um, went to university at Florida State University. After I graduated, I moved over down to Fort Lauderdale to be by the beach. And, you know, I tried to work my way into some kind of profession or occupation. And I just couldn't... Um, I just couldn't get into the rat race and I, I just had no interest in, in working for anybody. And I, I tried to start my own business ventures. That's really difficult. So when I was 26, I just gave up. I had some money. I had about $50,000 my grandmother had left me when she passed away. I bought a backpack, bought a one-way ticket to Canada. And I just, I just um, fucked off. And I just said, I'm just going to go wherever the road takes me. And 15 years later, I'm now in Corfu, Greece. Um, in, in the meantime, I've lived in Guatemala, Argentina. Um, I've lived in England. I've lived in Spain. I lived in China for seven years. Um, and I did some stints in the U.S. I lived in New York City a couple of times. Um, but yeah, mostly... Oh, I lived in Prague. So I've been around and now I've, after doing seven years in Asia, I've made my way back to Europe and I hope to find a place to settle down here. Sounds like your frequent flyer miles are definitely uh, put to good use. If I was smart and uh, responsible, I would have been collecting frequent flyer miles the whole way, but I just signed up for them this year and I'm starting to rack them up. I have to tell you, I'm in the same boat and I'm getting constant flack from uh, my other friends who travel because you know I, I work as an actor, so I fly all over the world. And uh, there's this sort of thing that happened when, you know, you don't sign up for frequent flyer miles and then you realize like how much money you're wasting by not doing that. And then it kind of compounds and it, it honestly gives me anxiety whenever I think about signing up for frequent flyer miles. But on um, the recommendation of my producer, I did sign up this year. Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate, uh, you know, working for people, I just hate responsibility in general. You know, that was just one more thing I would have had to keep track of, and I just never got around to it. But mm-hmm. in retrospect, I'm probably missed out on hundreds of thousands of frequent flyer miles that would have come in handy. So uh, now in my older years, I'm starting to um, gain some wisdom and taking some financial responsibility for myself and, and, mm-hmm. and get what's available to me. How would you describe your job title? I don't have a job. At Florida State, I got a writing degree. And for many years as I was traveling, I was just with my laptop and I was writing for you know newspapers and magazines. I wrote a lot of travel articles. I wrote anything that would come to me. And I, I was able to make a living writing real estate articles. I was writing for law firms. You know, Whatever would come to me, I would just be a, do freelance writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I burned out. You know, um, at, at the peak, I was writing you know eight hours a day at my computer and for writing for the intention was never to write for other people. I wanted to be a creative writer and write for myself and tell my own stories. And I just burned out from that. Um, so at some point I ended up in China 
And I thought it would be a good idea in the Yunnan province where everybody's a farmer and it's in the mountains, you know, near Tibet. I thought it would be a good idea to open an English school in a small little town and, and try to uh, build a business teaching English. And that was, it turned out to be a better lifestyle choice than a business choice because it was an absolutely beautiful place with really nice people. And um, I loved the culture, the food, and it was just a, a wonderful free place to live. But you can't make much money teaching English to farmers in rural China. So the business failed. And in that time, I was just, I was paying attention and I've always paid attention to financial markets and um, just global trends. And I saw something, a news article that just said, Bitcoin is crashing, Bitcoin is tanking. And I was like, what is this Bitcoin thing? And I started exploring it. And it just made sense to me that all currency and all finance was going to go digital and uh, that there would be an internet of money. And this fiat currency that's been um, printed by governments was obviously hyperinflating or going to hyperinflate because they've lost control of their you know, system of printing money to fund wars and oil companies and things like this. So I took the last $7,000 I had and I put it all into Bitcoin. And since then, I have been... Um, getting deeper and deeper into cryptocurrency. There you go. And obviously, with that $7,000, you were able to fund at least this trip to Greece. I now have financial freedom to do as I please. That's fantastic. For the people at home, but more so me, for a person who doesn't understand Bitcoin, let alone cryptocurrency at all, can you explain to me like I'm five? Emphasize that I'm not an expert. I am an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. Explain it to you like you're five. What Bitcoin does is it takes the power away from governments to create money and enslave people by controlling the supply of money. Okay. And, you know, enslave is a strong word, but I truly believe that's what people are, is they're enslaved both financially and mentally. Emotionally in some ways. Yeah, emotionally and mentally. And Bitcoin, because it's a finite resource... I think JP Morgan famously said, the only true money is gold. Everything else is just debt. Hmm. So when the US dollar was created and all sound money was created, it was backed by gold. Gold is the only real money because that's been the consensus by human beings for thousands of years. Hmm. Um, but fiat currency, the system that we currently use, is just paper printed up by governments and they control the hmm. supply and they can tax it at their will, and they can use it to fund, as I said, you know, whatever they choose. And a lot of it is criminal activity, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin takes the power away from them, and it lets people... You can just flip on your computer, and you can start buying or mining Bitcoin and sending it to your friends or family or to purchase anything you want instantly. And it takes the control away from the governments, and it puts the power of money into the hands of global citizens. Who decides the value of Bitcoin? The market. I think it's heavily manipulated now by big actors in the industry, as well as mm -hmm. I think Wall Street now is getting involved in manipulation by creating futures contracts. But the market, you know, that's all still the market. So the market decides the value of it. Okay. Who would be some of these like uh, big actors, big players that you mentioned? There are major mining farms in China predominantly, and they have massive amounts of computer power that are mining Bitcoin and they're able to control the hash power that mines it and they're able to buy and sell massive amounts of it. There are also mm -hmm. cryptocurrency exchanges that control the flows of it for, for buying and selling. I think they play a heavy hand in controlling the price. And now governments are, you know, governments have a strong fear that this is going to replace their money. And it's a real mm -hmm. threat to government power. So we've seen China come out against Bitcoin. We've seen um, the United States speak out against it. We've seen JP Morgan speak out against it. And I think the status quo of, you know, the financial world and, and, and governments are trying to keep a lid on it as much as they can for now. But uh, most of us that are into it believe the cat's out of the bag and that this will be the future of uh, money. You dropped some terms in there that I'm not quite familiar with. Uh, can you explain what Bitcoin mining is? From a technical perspective, I can't. But essentially, you can flip on your computer. 
You can run mm-hmm. a node that solves a mathematical equation and you're competing with other people that are running the same mathematical equation on their computers. And when, when your computer solves that equation, there is a Bitcoin reward for the solution. So you're actually using computer power to mine it as, as a, a gold mining company would use a you know, machinery to mine gold. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me that one of the it sounds to me that one of the most appealing things about Bitcoin is how independent you can be, how any any sort of person can teach themselves about it and they can do it at home on their own. Um, and it almost sounds to my naive ears a bit like a game. If you can figure out how the code works, then you can crack the system. Well, what it's funny you say game because what heavily plays into this and among all Bitcoin enthusiasts and experts is game theory. And they use game theory in order to figure out where this whole ecosystem is going, um, who are the bad actors that are going to come out against it, and, um, and how to play the game like, like the art of war um, mm-hmm. and how to make this a success. Because it is a revolution. And we're fighting, you know, powers that control basically every asset of our lives. And mm-hmm. we are trying to overthrow them. We're trying to overthrow the banking system and the governments and, and um, just create freedom for people by taking, and I've mentioned several times, we're taking the power of money back in our own hands. But over the last 20 years, data has become one of the most valuable resources in the world. Mm-hmm. And because the internet was not created perfectly, it's allowed data companies like Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, and um, Alibaba uh, to monopolize the world's data. Mm-hmm. So this technology also allows us to take the power of our own data into our own hands. And they say in the future, data will be the world's most valuable commodity like oil has been over the last 70 years while we industrialized. Um, so it's allowing it, us to take the power of money and data back into our own hands. It's very Robin Hood-esque. Um, and something beautiful about that as well is if you have an internet connection, like you don't have to have a massive background in finance. Um, you could be a farmer in uh, Myanmar. And if you have an internet connection and the willingness to learn and teach yourself, and you could essentially mine yourself out of poverty. Are there, are there any stories like this? Yeah, a lot of the original creators of of many um, blockchain startups, blockchain is the technology that uh, makes Bitcoin work. A lot of the um, enthusiasts and developers are actually working in third world countries first because they think this is where the biggest use case is, is to bring these people up out of poverty. Um, one of the biggest use cases is land titling because in countries like Zambia, Rwanda, and many of these uh, countries in Africa and probably also Southeast Asia, they don't have proper land titling. And land titling is the basic building block of a true capitalist um, society where you actually have possession of your own land and you can monetize it and you can be financially free by either farming or going to a bank and taking out a loan against your land um, in order to build a business. So they're, they're land titling in these, in these third world countries in order to provide people land ownership. Because mm-hmm. um, something guaranteed. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the only true renewable resources that we have until it becomes polluted. I think property rights are the, yeah, the first building block in, in um, financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I truly mean that. I'm not just saying that for vocal filler. Like my mind is uh, exploding at the moment. If you want to look in, there's a really interesting project um, working on land title registry. Uh, if you're familiar with overstock.com, yeah. they formed, uh, it's a more or less a failing retail, uh, you know, online retail company. Um, but in the, in the early days of um, the Bitcoin and blockchain boom, uh, their CEO, his name is Patrick Byrne, and he became one of the largest 
proponents, global proponents of this technology because he saw the potential to um, bring people up out of poverty and free the... His, his big issue was with the Wall Street and financial banks and he really wanted to free his, his own company from um, manipulation mm-hmm. on his company stock. But he also saw the potential to um, help people in third world developing countries. So he formed a company called Medici Ventures and they have several... They have like 20 portfolio companies. One of them is called Medici Land Ventures and they have signed agreements with the World Bank, Rwanda, Zambia. And now they're actually in um, the United States. They have an agreement with Teton County, Wyoming and um, Medici Land Ventures. You can Google it and see what they're doing with land title registry in, uh, in Africa. Predominantly, they're really excited about what they've got. I think already in Zambia, they have over 50,000 um, land titles registered on the blockchain. That's beautiful. I think uh, for a lot of people who don't know about Bitcoin, um, a lot of us tend to think that it exists in this sort of very seedy part of the internet. And these people who are playing with Bitcoin um, tend to be dark faces behind a computer with like brightly lit eyes and very, very greedy. But hearing all of these stories, um, it seems like a very altruistic adventure. Yeah, the media and the banks and the government spread a lot of misinformation. And in the beginning, actually, it was a really good way to buy drugs and do seeding things over the internet. And it still is because it's more or less anonymous. And um, it's, you know, it's very easy ways. It's a very easy way to do financial transactions. But the government and the banks seized upon this because it's a threat to their status quo, you know, power. So they they wanted to spread misinformation like, uh, you know, this was an evil thing, but in fact, they are the evil thing and we're trying to stop them from continuing their evil. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service isn't going to be sending uh, intercompany emails anytime soon. So kind of happens with uh, dinosaur industries whenever a new one comes up and is chasing its tails. Yeah. Anytime there's a, you know, an uh, interrupting technology, um, the status quo is going to fight tooth and nail to, um, you know, keep their money train going. Mm-hmm. All right, Brad. So we talked a bit about uh, what you enjoy about Bitcoin, um, what sparks joy for you, the the freedom that it gives you. You're taking power out of the hands of um, traditional power systems. And it sounds like you also enjoy this building up a lot of people in third world and developing nations. Um mm-hmm. What is something that annoys you about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general? What annoys me about it? I wish the price were higher at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I can't complain. But uh, one year ago, um, it was crazy. I mean, Bitcoin was $20,000. And, we, you know, I and my colleagues had just become very wealthy in a very short amount of time. And it was just like free money. Mm-hmm. And um, it was exciting. And over the last year, it's just been very depressing as the prices has just crashed down to basically where it started um, when we were just starting to get excited. Mm-hmm. So we're writing out this, what they call, you know, what they call a crypto winter. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I can't complain about the price. What, the, what annoys me about it? Nothing. I'm very excited. I'm super excited for the future of it. I'm really happy to be a part of it. Um, I've always been um, very wary of everything that the financial institutions and governments do with the, you know, the the money they steal from us. Um, I don't think they're doing good for the world. I don't know exactly what their agenda is. It seems like they don't have one anymore. You know, mm-hmm. just to fill their own pockets with their own money. Mm-hmm. And their agenda seems to be destruction. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that this technology can help play a part in uh, stopping them from from doing that. There's a quote that my grandfather always used to tell me was, uh, you know, when all the rivers run dry and all the trees are burned down, uh, only then mankind will realize that you can't eat money. Yeah. And at this point, um, the inequality has gotten so out of control that you have just a handful of very, very rich and powerful men control, you know, running the world and they're controlling the agenda mm-hmm. and they just want to consume and destroy as far mm-hmm. as I can see. Speaking of that, are there any um, predominant female players in Bitcoin that you know of? 
anyone can partake to the level of participation that they want. So there's really no, nothing preventing any man or woman from being as successful as they want. Uh, Blythe Masters is the founder of Hyperledger. She used to be a partner at JP Morgan. It was either JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Don't quote me on that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and she was very successful on Wall Street. And in the very beginning of this blockchain revolution, she left the bank and said she's going to start up uh, the Hyperledger blockchain, which now is one of the biggest blockchain projects, you know, affiliated with IBM and um, Microsoft and all the major internet players and financial institutions. So Blythe Masters was a big original player who who really brought the technology to the mainstream uh, financial institutions. You mentioned a couple of years ago, Bitcoin was, you said it was like uh, 20,000 something and you guys were having this great financial boom. Um, I assume that you meant that one Bitcoin was equal to about 20,000 US dollars. Yeah, it hit, it hit like 19,000 and whatever, 900 and something. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> so can you talk to me a little bit about when maybe... Maybe we should start from where Bitcoin started and then go into when you bought into Bitcoin, how much it was for one coin. Are, yeah. are those the units that we even use? Do we say one coin? Yeah, one Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, it was pennies when it was released, um, when the code was released upon the internet. And people could just turn on their computer and start mining it. And they can mine a good number of Bitcoins just from their desktop computer. And the people who started doing that when it was one penny, if they held on through that whole time, they became very wealthy. Um, I started paying attention just after the first initial bubble and crash. So it had run up from pennies over the course of a couple of years. It had run up from pennies to over Mm $1,000. And then there was this... um, uh, you know, one of the exchange, an exchange that people stored their bitcoins on, got hacked, and there was bad news, and it the the price just started crashing. But it was a it was a speculative bubble because there was no use case for it at the point. It was just this magic internet money, um, and that's when it started to make headlines, and I got interested in it. And then, what is now probably the biggest bitcoin exchange in the world, Coinbase, came out at that time, and and bitcoin was. I started getting involved and I bought my first Bitcoin through Coinbase for about $350. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I started dabbling and I started telling people about it and everybody thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're putting your money into this magic internet money that's, you know. You went to the market to sell the cow and you came back with magic beans. What are you doing? Right. And no, and then everybody thought I was nuts. And then the, when another blockchain project came out, it was called Ethereum. And it, it took the technology that Bitcoin had created for money or value. And it added a layer of, um, it, it added a way that you can create these contracts online where um, they call them smart contracts. And it gave the ability for people to um, the most interesting use case was it, it was going to allow machines to communicate with each other and you can actually program commands into this cryptocurrency um, to actually perform functions on the internet and for the internet of things. Um, and and I saw that come and I got into that at $2 and at the peak, it ran up to $1,400. But when I was, I was telling everybody to, that's a funny story. Human emotions play a huge role in this. And, and, and sorry, we need to say that one more time. You bought in at $2 and it went up to $1,400. Right. But I did, I I bought it at two. I sold, I didn't hold it until 1400. I wish I had, but when it hit about $35, I was like, Oh, I'm rich. And I sold it. <laughs> and then it yeah. went from thirty five to fourteen hundred. Um rich for me at that time was like twenty thousand dollars. So I was like I was very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, twenty twenty thousand dollars is still rich. For a lot of people it absolutely is. Um and I was very happy at thirty five to sell it. And you know, what did I make? Uh I made fifteen times on my money if I but you know, in retrospect, fourteen hundred dollars would have been a nicer selling point. Um but here's here's the the part of the craze that really got to me. 
all the people who I told to buy at three hundred dollars Bitcoin and to buy Ethereum at two dollars, they're like, "You're nuts!" Didn't even didn't even take a look. Didn't care what I had to say. When Bitcoin started hitting fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand, and Ethereum started hitting eight hundred, nine hundred, all those same people were all in my emails, in my messages, calling me on the phone, mm-hmm. asking me how I can buy into this new asset class. Mm-hmm. And they're the people who didn't listen to me at three hundred dollars. So. It's called FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just an emotional um, it's just an emotional reaction that people have to um, financial markets. And this is what creates speculative bubbles. And I, my, my theory on the technology did not change as the price went up. So I, all those people that didn't listen to me at $300 and listened, uh, came to me at you know, $14,000, $15,000, I'm like, okay, here's how you buy it. I told you before, I'll tell you mm-hmm. now. Um, but Do you think now it's too late to buy into these markets? Well, here's the oh, thing. Sorry all, to interrupt. Continue. All those people who didn't listen to me in the beginning, and this this is you know everybody who was early on has the same story about their friends and family. So then they get in at fourteen and fifteen thousand dollars, and now it's crashed all the way back to you know as it rose from fourteen and fifteen thousand, they're still excited because it's going up to eighteen, nineteen. They're like, this is great. Mm-hmm. And then the bubble burst, and then it said. Back to fifteen thousand, down to ten thousand, down to nine thousand, eight thousand. Now it's sitting at about four thousand dollars, and they're all very butthurt. And you know, I'm the one to blame because I'm the one that got them into this speculative asset. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they had listened to me in the first, you know, in the first place, they would be just fine. But I have no doubt that it's going to rise back to twenty thousand dollars and far beyond that. So mm-hmm. if if people Again, now they're now as their emotions told them to buy it as it was going up. Their emotions, you know, they're feeling the pain. Time to sell it, right? But if if they're just wise and patient, now's the time to buy, not the time to sell mm-hmm. because the price is down. They just they have a second opportunity now to get in at much cheaper prices. And you know, the fundamentals have only gotten better. The technology is only improving. There's only more and more. Um, internet companies and governments and financial institutions warming up to this technology. And mm. it's a foregone conclusion. I don't want to say definitively, but in my opinion, this is the future of money, finance, and the internet. Is there anything that you would want people who have never invested in Bitcoin before or people who just know nothing about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to know? It's we call it DYOR, do your own research. Uh, there's no way I can sit here and tell people 10 years of, uh, and inform them about 10 years of innovation. Mm-hmm. This is such a brand new technology that the innovation is happening, you know, every day as we speak, there, there are developers coding and building and it's just constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot possibly educate anyone in a, in a 20 minute podcast. They would have to go on YouTube and start doing their own research. And, um, once you go down the rabbit hole, we call it the rabbit hole or the, you know, I don't know which pill Neo took in the matrix, whether it was the red or blue <laughs> pill, but once you take that pill and you get into this um, new technology, there's no turning back. It's so fascinating. And the promise of it is so big that um, you'll just want to learn more. We have these two words that we keep saying, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Now, Bitcoin is, from what I know, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, correct? But Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency? Right. Bitcoin is the original one um, created by Satoshi Nakamoto, and he released the white paper and the code. Um, And then following that, there were many further iterations of the technology. And now we have this whole cryptocurrency space, and it's a market and it's an asset class and a market with, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of different cryptocurrencies. Most of them are scammy. Uh, there's a term we like to call shit coins because they are you know worthless shit. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I would say 90% of the market is that now, but that is the cryptocurrency market. So we talked a bit about what brought you from Florida and into New York and then out into all over the world. But having lived in so many different places, uh, I'm curious, what's your background? How do you self-identify? Like if someone asks, who is Brad? Think. Yeah, uh, I mean, when people ask, 
I, you know, by my passport, I have to say I'm an American, a U.S. citizen, but I'm a citizen of the world. I've been to 50 countries. Um, I'm in Greece now, and I think this was actually my 50th. I've counted. Um, yeah. Wow. So, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I would consider myself a citizen of the world. I'm, I'm not a big fan of boundaries and governments and um, restrictions. I am a, I'm a proponent of freedom. Yeah, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, it's, it's crazy I have to buy a ticket to hop into a plane to cross an imaginary border with an imaginary piece of paper to see people of my own species. It's, it's insane. It is. It's, it's nutter butters, man. It's just part um, of the evolution and it's the time we're in. And I, I believe in the future, you know, this will all not be the case. Hopefully it is getting easier and easier with, you know, air travel. And then also just, you know, just because you're born in a place doesn't mean you have to stay in a place. You know, you're a person, you have legs, you're not a tree, you don't have roots. Yeah. And it all just comes down to government control and, and restrictions they want to place on you to, to maintain their own power. Mm-hmm. Where are you, where are you currently living? I currently don't have a home. I was in China for the last seven years and uh, we've just given up our apartment in Shanghai with the intention of coming to Europe and looking for a place. And because Greece has the best residency program for non-EU citizens, um, we're looking at Greece as a possible new home. But at the moment, I'm homeless. So you're a digital nomad in the very real sense. Yeah, I am. So living in Airbnbs. What are some challenges that come with that? I've been doing it for 15 years. Um, Challenges is not being able to buy things you like and have a place to put them. Other than that, um, you know, just carrying everything you own on your back and... The the moving, if you find a nice place to stay and you spend some time there, two weeks, a month, it's great. Um, you mm-hmm. get to settle in and relax. Uh, moving becomes challenging after a while. If you have to get a taxi to a plane, to an airport, to a train, to a boat, you know, those, those trips get exhausting. But in that said, I absolutely love it. What are some of the things that you really love about this, about this sort of uh, lifestyle? It's just constantly learning and seeing new things and meeting new people. And you get to choose your own environment. It's like choose your own adventure, you know? And, uh, so what are you currently learning? In Greece, I'm just learning how beautiful of a country this is. It's just m- mountains and crystal clear water everywhere. And you get to experience new food, new cultures. You talk to the people about their country and how they feel the direction of things are going. We just spent a month in Turkey. And that was a totally new experience. Um, Turkey, I haven't spent much time in the Middle East and Turkey isn't the Middle East. It's the Middle East. It really is. I mean, they want to call it, you know, European and I guess parts of Istanbul and parts of the country have a bit of a European vibe, but Turkey really. It's on Istanbul, it's on the crux between uh, Asia and Europe, right? And then also because of its... Um, former Persian influence, it's considered like not quite the Middle East, but kind of the Middle East. It's a crossroads for the world and it has been for a millennium. So all, all roads have really led through, um, Turkey, but in, in its current iteration with its current dictator and I, I think the current general, um, national mentality where it's predominantly Muslim and they're, you know, on the border of Syria and, and everything going on in the Middle East. It definitely has a Middle Eastern feel to it. What's something really surprising that you had or that you discovered about living in Turkey? We didn't live there. We traveled for a month. Oh, traveled. Istanbul is an amazing city. I loved it. It's modern and ancient and European and Asian and, um, you know, Islamic all at the same time. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful melting pot, great food, um, amazing architecture. And then in the country, we went to Cappadocia. And I, if you're familiar with what, uh, I've never seen that prior to going to Cappadocia, the only, the, the thing that mo- most blew my mind, 
out of anything on this planet was Machu Picchu in Peru. And I had gone twice and just standing on top of that mountain and you're, you're just looking down at like, what the fuck? Like, who built this? And how did they pull this off? But uh, just and when you go to Cappadocia in Turkey, you're just like, it's, it's like you've left the planet Earth and you're just on a completely different planet. The landscape and the history there, they have, they have uh, 12,000 year old cities that go 13 stories underground and it's these systems of caves that were Whoa. dug out. And nobody knows why they dug them out. They have, you know, they have several theories. Um, but I was blown away by the history in Turkey. Like you can just be driving along a mountain road and there's this, um, you know, there are these old tombs carved into the mountainside and you're like, what the hell is that doing there? And, you know, they're like 3,000 years old. And it reminds you of uh, Petra in, uh, in Jordan. In Jordan. If you're familiar with, familiar with that. Yeah, um, actually, the previous uh, guest on the last episode, she is flying to Jordan as we speak, actually. Hmm. So there, you can, feel, you can feel the existence still of an ancient civilization that um, mm-hmm. there are a lot of question marks about, and archaeologists and historians are still trying to get a grasp of, but you can feel it there. And um, it's a really interesting feeling. All right, now we're moving into our mailbag for those of you at home who have questions for the expats or uh, for me personally or anyone who has previously previously been on the show. Go ahead and email us at asktheexpats at gmail.com and let's dive right in. Okay, our first letter comes from Steve out of Chicago. Um, Steve wants to know about dating. What is dating like uh, as being an expat? It's fun because you meet people from all over the world. Um, and oftentimes you're both transient and you, you know, you, you can have plenty of very short term relationships or you can fall in love and stay in a country and fall in love with a country and a person and, and really, um, delve into that relationship and, and the country and the culture. Um, so it's, it's great. It's like a world of opportunity as far as the people you can meet. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And uh, because, you know, through dating, and I personally believe that dating should also be fun, um, you know, you go out and sometimes uh, it turns into a long-term romance or sometimes it just turns into just meeting a friend. And there are some, there are some troubles there because, you know, since we're transient, we have people who are coming in and out of the city and maybe you get on really, really well, but then they have a flight the next day or in a week later. But then, you know, it develops into whenever you're in Moscow, all of a sudden you have a place to stay and a friend to hang out with. Right. So I have, and since I've been on the road for 15 years, I have people all over the world that I can just drop a line to and say, I'm coming to your country and I'm, they'll be happy to let me stay with them. Um, you know, and I've developed relationships. I'm heterosexual, but I've, I've had plenty of male friends and I've plenty of female friends and, um, I have friends all over the world and, you know, the good ones you keep in touch with. And even if you haven't spoken to them in a year, you can say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be in uh, Cape town, uh, this coming months. Let's meet up. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I had a friend that I hadn't seen in maybe four or five years or so. And then I popped into uh, Hanoi and she was in town. And I remember very clearly, I actually got off the motorcycle and the first thing she said to me was like, have I got a story for you? And then we jumped in and had a coffee and it was like, I had just said goodbye to her. Yeah, because travelers bond, you know, especially when you're in a new place experiencing new things and that, that bond just lasts forever. Mm-hmm. And you can really just slip right back into that bond when you meet up again. Absolutely. And there, there is something there of like, because you're so far away from home, there is a sort of network that is created among travelers. And sort of like an unspoken bond of like, you know, for example, if like we know each other through Cody, but if you were in Taipei and then we know each other now through this podcast, if you were in Taipei immediately, I would say, drop me a line. I'll take you around and show you around. If you need anything, I'd help you out. And there is that sort of bond. And I think that we also know as travelers, since we're so far away from home that, uh, you know, we need to really rely on each other, you know, like. I'm incapable of doing all things like I have my flaws and I have the things I'm good at as well. And the same with every other person. So we tend to rely on each other much more. 
Yeah. And we know, we know that we're capable and I, that among my friends and family back home who I grew up with, I don't share that bond. Like I could not count mm. on them to, to give me guidance in, <clears throat> in experience in a new place or, you know, trying to find my way. Uh, they would have to come to me, but we, I, I don't share that bond with, you know, um, people who have, have not left Florida. You know, it's, <laughs> people listening at home might think that this is scripted, but I swear it's not. Um, that actually leads into our next listener letter from Rebecca out of the UK. Uh, she is an expat from Guatemala. And she, I had to translate from Spanish, but she essentially writes that uh, whenever she goes back home, she finds it very hard to relate to the people that she grew up with. She still loves them dearly, <clears throat> but uh, she just has a hard time relating. Do you have any advice on that? Or do you yeah, have experiences had, with that? Yeah. In the beginning, in the beginning, in the first years, it was much worse. And I, I felt like an outsider in my own home and I just couldn't identify. And I, I kind of withdrew and I didn't want to go out to bars and places. Um, I had been in living in, I had been in South America and Africa, you know, and, and uh, in different worlds. And I just couldn't come back and identify with first world problems, you know, and the conversations people were having. Um, in Florida, people just tend to talk about money and just things that just I don't care about anymore. But over the years, I've learned just to go back and uh, I don't want to say I'm dumbing myself down to identify with them, but um, just just stick to what they know. Is all mm -hmm. I can do. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that, and I don't think it's I don't think it's dumbing down at all. It's the same way that you know, with certain groups of friends that you have shared interests with, you talk about these things. You know, with a lot of my friends living in Beijing, our common interest is Chinese culture. I'm not going to talk to them about you know uh, this very niche form of fishing that we have in Nebraska called noodling, where you stick your arm in a giant catfish's mouth and throw it on the banks because they don't have those common grounds. Um, I think as expats, we are more forgiving for people from different cultures when we talk about something that they don't know about. But then for me, for example, when I go back home to Nebraska, um, when I would first return, it was frustrating because here are all these people that I shouldn't have this cultural barrier with, but there are so many things I just can't talk to them about or I can't relate to them with. And it also comes from a point because they're asking how you have been to tell them about your travels because one, they're being nice, but two, they are genuinely curious, but there is something that happens when you're from a smaller town or from a community that doesn't change so often where you have all of these interesting new experiences and stories that the more you tell them, they, from what I find, people tend to, they have a hard time relating or they sort of feel like, Oh, wow, you're doing all of these things, but you know, I'm not. Yeah. And so there's a bit of insecurity there. Yes. And yeah, so now having done this for seven, eight years, like you, um, well, you've done it for more, but like you, when I go home, I tend to, you know, you learn how to navigate your answers from, you know, 30 minute stories to just five second quips of like, oh, how's China? Mm, Chinese. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to put it, you have to put everything you know and you've experienced and everything you're interested, you just have to put it to the side and, and focus on, what they know mm. and also yeah. you know the experience of being back home isn't necessarily for you anymore it's also for the people that you're seeing yeah. and you want to make the experience enjoyable you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable i wouldn't talk about my career in depth with my grandmother because you know it might make her uncomfortable or she just can't relate yeah and especially the guys who have office jobs and and you know or debts and you know they don't have the ability to have this kind of freedom. You don't want to make them envious or, you know, I don't want to use words, but that, that have a negative connotation, jealous or envious. So, um, yeah, you tone it down and you don't want to tell them what wonderful, great adventures you're having. But I mean, what I do is I, I invite them to come join me at their first chance they get, but they never get the chance you know, or they never make themselves. They don't realize they have the freedom to make that choice and they just don't make they don't create those chances for themselves. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the same way when you're in a very happy, healthy, thriving relationship that you don't constantly brag about it to your single friends. 
Right. Um, and the inverse of that as of being an expat is it has taken me so long to set down roots. Like a lot of friends that I went to school with or grew up with, now they have wives or husbands or children and own property and all these sorts of things. And when I go back home, you know, they're very envious. They're very envious of me because of my sort of freelance lifestyle. I can pick up and move to Egypt for four months. But at the same time, I'm very jealous and envious of their children and their stability and, and they have a nine to five. Yeah, it's, no, I'm not, it's all about choices. It is. And uh, it, in retrospect, it just makes me happy about the choices I made because I don't envy that stability at all. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just not in my, it's not in my blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely prefer the life that I have now. Um, in the future, you know, settling down would be nice. But I think once you're an expat, your version of settling down is so different than people from Florida or from Nebraska. Like, I could not feasibly see myself living in a country for more than five years at a time. Or I could see myself living there, but I would need to take a vacation at least once a month. That's why I've come to Europe, just because there's there's so much here in the, in, in such an easily traversable um, continent. You know, Europe's not that big. Asia is massive. So if I want to fly from Japan, you know, down to see uh, the Philippines, it's going to take me a long time. Europe is so easily traveled and I can see such a diverse um, variety of cultures. And there's just so much here packed into this little continent. And even Africa is right here. Um, if I were to settle down here and have some kind of, uh, some kind of, you know, degree of stability, even if it's in Greece, I can be in Rome in an hour. And from there I can be in, in the, you know, the mountains of Spain. Mm-hmm. I can fly down to Israel. I can be over in Turkey. Um, there's, in this part of the world around the Mediterranean, there's just a lot of op- options and, mm-hmm. you know, adventures to be had. Very quickly, if you wouldn't mind talking about it, so many people are afraid to travel because they don't have the money or they, you know, they worry about safety or things like that. Can you just give some advice to them? Because I, I keep trying to tell so many people that it's not impossible. It's very easy to do, but people are afraid to do it. I totally get it because you have to be a risk taker. And you know what? I, I have to give credit to my, the, the place that I was born and the family I was born into because we had financial stability. And I always had that knowledge that if, if I, if I came home flat broke, um, and destitute, I would always have a place to stay and I would always have food on my plate. So it really depends on your financial situation. And if you don't have the ability to take that risk, um, you still can because it, either way, it's a risk because everyone was telling me, you're crazy. What are you going to do? You know, you're going to, you're not building a career. Um, you're not going to have a family. You're going to be alone and penniless. And you know, whether, whether there was, um, a place for me to go back to or not, it's a huge risk, not, you know, um, building your own, um, financial freedom. Um, so I totally understand that people, especially I'm 40 now. So at my age, if you don't have it now, you, you have to start getting a grip on, you know, uh, having some money for your future. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you got to be a risk taker and you got to just say, fuck it. And I want, I want to live my life this way. And I want to go out and see the world and, and, and have these adventures. I mean, cause all we have is time in the end, you know, I don't know how many lives we have. We don't have the answer to that, but I only have this one once. And, um, after I graduated university, I just knew I wasn't going to sit in an office and spend my life working for somebody or just, you know, I just didn't have it in me. And maybe it's, maybe it's part of, you know, your young, the, the, the psyche that's formed when you're young or your parents give it to you, or maybe it's genetic, you know, maybe some people just have this rambling gene where they just need to get out and have adventures. I don't know, but I caught the bug. And I was brave enough to just say, fuck everything. I don't care what anybody says or thinks. I'm just going to put on a backpack and go. And I don't know where I'm going. And I don't know where I'm going to end up. And I don't care. All right. And that brings us to the end of our podcast to the segment that I love called, What Did We Learn? So today, 
Man, um, as Brad said earlier, I, he can't sum up 10 years of research into a 20-minute podcast. And even though this is a bit longer than 20 minutes, I don't think that I can sum up everything I learned in this podcast into just 30 seconds. Uh, I did learn that Bitcoin is more accessible than previously thought. Uh, I thought that you would have to attend many, many classes, but from everything I'm hearing, if you have the desire to learn, you can teach yourself. I also learned that the people investing in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are not these seedy, dark internet types that uh, many media news outlets would want you to believe. Uh, I've also learned that Bitcoin is accessible and is doing a lot of great work to people in developing nations. And once again, I learned that if you want to learn a lot about somebody or make new friends or reconnect with old ones, podcasting is a great way to do that. Thank you so much again for joining us, Brad. Um, I'm, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I really had a good time chatting with you. I learned a lot. Well, equally. Do you, do you have any advice or uh, any tidbits that you would like to send to the folks at home? Yeah, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're not into Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency space, just consider the fact that, uh, it's okay. Maybe it's not a fact, but consider that what it is is a revolution and think of Bitcoin as the constitution of the United States of America. We're overthrowing this, this thing was created to overthrow an oppressive power and, and really write our own future. And I truly believe if you don't get educated and involved in it now, you will be forced to within the next five to 10 years because you won't have a choice. Um, so I would say start learning about it. Start dabbling. Buy a little. Learn, learn how to buy it. Learn how to hold it safely in your own digital wallet. Start learning about um, other cryptocurrencies. And as far as traveling and seeing the world and being an expat, just don't. If, if that's what you want to do, don't wait, you know. Um, if your dream is to travel and see the world, just do it. Don't be afraid of what anybody tells you. Don't be afraid of uh, where you might end up. And I'm not saying you're always going to end up in a good place. You can end up in a, in a jail in Malawi. Um, but that, that happened to me. That's for another podcast. But, oh, man. Um, but, man, uh, I want to go for another hour now. Yeah, that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, just have uh, grow some balls and be brave and do what you want to do. That's it. If you there have a dream, you have a dream, just take a chance and follow that dream. 